Hello, and welcome to the Innovate IPM podcast, where we are passionate about the future of the industrial projects professions, presenting you the best of project management, people, and practices, combining the wisdom of time-tested methods with the cutting-edge technologies and advancements that are modernizing our craft. Our mission is to contribute to the growth and progress of the industrial project management community. It's time to talk scope, schedule, and budget. Let's start the show. Hey folks, welcome to the Innovate IPM podcast. Timestamp, it is June 26th, 2020. Today's show is brought to you by Advanced Planning Analytics of Houston, Texas. Your go-to source for training in construction and engineering planning, scheduling, risk, work packaging, and cost. There are both in-person while following proper COVID protocol, of course, and online courses available. Advanced Planning Analytics is one of only a couple of Primavera P6 certified partners in the Houston area, and they offer the highest quality P6 training courses. And as uh, until 5 p.m. Sunday, that's 5 p.m. June 28th, Advanced Planning Analytics is offering a $100 special for online P6 training. Uh, If you can't make that, then in July, the same offer will extend to the risk and estimating classes. You want to take advantage of that. These are pretty pretty good discounts. Uh, Speaking of that, I am proud to say that Innovate IPM is collaborating with Advanced Planning Analytics to bring you a day-long class on TIC estimating for industrial projects taught by yours truly. We are going to discuss a lot of things, including planning estimates, building out a solid basis, compiling compiling and conditioning the data, creating component assemblies, uh, building up indirects, validating costs, reporting and summarizing and quality assurance. So you'll want to get a hold of advanced planning analytics and register for these classes by going to advancedplanninganalytics.com today. Let's get to Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Dr. Gleb is a true blue expert in organizational decision-making and risk. He's a cognitive neuroscientist and expert on behavioral economics and decision-making, and he is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts. He has over 20 years under his belt, in consulting, coaching, speaking, and training hundreds of clients around the world, including those at Aflac, IBM, Honda, Wells Fargo, and the World Wildlife Fund. He has spent 15 years in academia, including seven as a professor at Ohio State University. He published dozens of peer-reviewed pieces in academic journals, such as Behavioral and Social Issues and the Journal of Social and Political Psychology. His thought leadership has been featured on Fast Company, CBS News, Time, CNBC, Inc. Magazine, and elsewhere. He's the author of several well-regarded books. You can just look him up. They're not hard to find. His new book is Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. And we're going to talk a lot about that on the show today. You can find him on LinkedIn, Gleb Sapersky, and you can find him on Twitter, at at Gleb underscore Sapersky. That's spelled T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. 
And of course, we'll have all this linked in the show notes. You can also find his company, um, Disaster Avoidance Experts at DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. It's an honor to have him on the show, and I think you're all going to enjoy this engaging conversation about risk. Enjoy the show. Hi there, Dr. Gleb. I'm glad to have you on today at the Innovate IPM podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Rob. Thanks for inviting me on. Really appreciate the opportunity to share about the, my expertise with your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're definitely looking forward to learning more about disaster avoidance and how it relates to, obviously, we understand in engineering construction, uh, how that relates to our world. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your business? My expertise is, like you said, Rob, in disaster avoidance, specifically in risk management, decision-making, and strategic planning. Now, when you look at disasters, there are only two types of disasters. From Then they can come from decisions. One type of disasters comes from decisions that we actively make. So we make a decision and it leads to a disaster or a series of decisions that leads to a disaster. Or the other type of disaster comes from a decision that we fail to make. When we fail to foresee a disaster, fail to take the necessary steps to prevent it, to address it, those are the only two types of disasters that we really face. Unfortunately, people don't think about that. They don't think about their decision-making process. They don't think about the risk management process as the steps they need to take to avoid disasters and maximize success. And this is what I've been doing for the last 20 years, Mm -hmm. working on how do we actually make decisions and manage risks effectively? Because the typical way that we make decisions, going with your gut, following your intuitions, trusting your heart, going with what our mentor might have taught us, is pretty bad, actually, when you look at the research on this topic. And I've been studying this topic as a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist. I've spent 15 years researching this formally as an academic, so cognitive neuroscience, how our brain works, which, of course, is the part of us that makes decisions, and then behavioral economics, specifically how we behave in economic situations. And I've also, as I mentioned, spent 20 years doing consulting, coaching, and training for business leaders in construction, manufacturing, or industry of all sorts for a long time, so 20 years. So I have pragmatic business experience. It's not simply you know, theoretical knowledge going over people's heads. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So you say it's it's pretty bad to, to use our guts. How bad it is, is it? Well, the problem with our gut, so let's understand, first of all, the problem. Unfortunately, our gut reactions are not wired for the modern environment. That's not what they're for. That's not their goal. They're wired for the savanna environment. When we were living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. That's what our guts are wired for. They're wired to be tribal, so that's very important. And they're wired for survival in that hunter-forager savanna environment. So, for example, Mm -hmm. our primary response to threats is the fight-or-flight response. You might have heard of this as the saber-toothed tiger response when we jump at 100 shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, that was great in the savanna environment when we faced immediate, intense, in the moment, life or death threats. The kind of threats we face now are not that. Right. That's not the kind of threats we face. We face much more complex, ambiguous threats. We The kind of things that we deal with are fight or flight is not the right response. I mean, let's say you're dealing with constructive critical feedback from the CEO of your company, right? So let's, think, let's imagine that situation. What okay. is the natural response? Now, 
some type some people when they're dealing with when their boss calls them and says here's you know here's some constructive critical feedback they shut down they feel like they're distancing themselves they're ignoring whatever is being said <laughs> they're not really dealing with it that's one type of response the other type and that's the flight you flee from the reality of the situation mm-hmm. that's the flight response not good the fight response of course is where you start to argue back and with your boss and say no what are you talking about you're wrong I'm right <laughs> you you're a jerk I'm awesome not the right <laughs> response either right no, don't do that the, yeah, the, both of those are very tempting responses that's what your gut feels immediately in the moment that's what it pulls you to do now and if you are in the stage of where you are right now and you're being talked to by the CEO of your CEO of your company you've probably learned that those types of responses are not good for your career but that's, that's the intuitive right. thing to do and there's so many other areas of life where we are pulled to do the wrong thing but we don't realize it's much more obvious than the example that I've given right but mm-hmm. in so many other areas it's much less obvious and we do the wrong thing all the time people are reward praised leaders are praised managers are praised engineers are praised for making quick decisions and trusting their experience when often that experience is not a good fit for the current situation and the decision should not be quick people tend to be way too overconfident about their ability and like their ideas way too much so that is a series of problems that we have to deal with as human beings and that's what i describe in my newest book never go with your gut how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters yeah very good explanation and and good segue into the book because in the book you start out describing the autopilot system of uh, decision-making versus the intentional. Could you elaborate on that? The autopilot system is our ancient ancestral system. It's much more powerful. You might have heard of it as the lizard brain, the amygdala part of the brain. It's our emotions. It's our feelings. It's what feels comfortable to us. And the thing is, the autopilot system feels right. It feels mm-hmm. that when certain information that we like and feels pleasant to us, we feel that this information is right and we therefore believe it is right and we act on it. And we feel a certain course of action is the right one we feel and therefore we act on it because we feel it's the right course of action. Mm -hmm. We don't realize that it's the, what, when we feel certain information is right, it may not be the right information at all. And when we feel a certain course of action is right, it may not be the right course of action at all. That's completely not intuitive. But that's where we need to, for example, when you're getting constructive critical feedback from your CEO, you need to turn on the intentional system. The intentional system is much weaker, much smaller. It's the rational, logical part of our brain. It's the one that deals with abstractions, with complexity, with not black and white thinking, but with shades of gray with probabilities. That's the system, that's the part of our brain that can turn on and recognize when our autopilot system is about to steer us in the wrong direction, Mm, if you have taught it to do so. And there are many areas where we can actually catch these mistakes. The mistakes we tend to make because of how our brain is wired, our evolutionary heritage, are called cognitive biases. So these are the dangerous judgment errors that my book deals with, that this field of cognitive neuroscience so it talks about these dangerous judgment errors called cognitive biases. And you can, you can look them up on Wikipedia. There's over 100 of them. My book, the most dangerous ones in professional settings and how to address them. 
So you've got to teach your intentional system the right mental habits, such as not talking back to your boss and incorporating the information that he tells you in your future activities, as opposed to ignoring it and shutting it down. But it's a very hard thing to do. So it's a mental habit you deliberately have to develop. Just like, for example, you have also have to develop physical habits. Like for when you come across, a, you know, let's say a carton of ice cream, a gallon of ice cream, it says that a serving of ice cream is half a cup. Uh, who eats half a cup of ice cream? You show me this person. <laughs> you know, you open up not that this gallon. guy. Exactly. Not this guy. <laughs> you know, you start eating it. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll serve myself half a cup. Yeah. Then you do another half a cup, you know, another half a cup and you eat eating a third of the, you know, third of the bus packet, right? That's right. <laughs> and that is the thing that is not the best idea if you want to stay fit and healthy. So you needed to develop some effective strategies to address these habits, these problematic intuitive habits. In the Savannah environment, it was the right thing to do when you came across a source of sugar, like honey, bananas, apples, to eat as much of it as possible. That, that's inbuilt in us. But in the modern environment, that's a terrible idea because mm-hmm. we have much more sugar around. So it's much better to not start eating the ice cream unless you intend to eat a third of the pack and be comfortable with eating a third of the gallon of ice cream. <laughs> or you know, maybe not buy the ice cream, maybe eat fruit instead. So in the same way, we need to develop healthy mental habits, mental habits that allow us to make the right decisions, that allow us to have the intentional system guide us into making the right decisions, managing risks, as opposed to making decisions that lead to disasters. Gotcha. Okay. Well, what are some of the techniques that you use to address those dangerous um, judgment errors? So you want to think about, there are 12 techniques that I talk about in the book, and I'll only be able to talk about a couple of them. One of them is you want to be able to delay your decisions, your delay your reactions, not make that snap judgment and not trust your snap judgment. We all have snap judgments, a natural thing. It's, you know, we see something, we immediately evaluate it. But that immediate evaluation may be very wrong and we should not trust it. Let's say when your mom told you to count to 10 before you answer back to someone when you feel heated, that's good advice in general for decisions. You want to count to 10 because it takes more than a second for your intentional system to turn on. Your autopilot system turns on in milliseconds. I mean, that's the system that you know you need to get you out of the way of a moving car. It's mm-hmm. not a good idea to spend some time thinking about it, counting to 10 before deciding whether to get out of the way of a moving car. And that is not good. But, in the, but you want to be able to delay your decisions in the current environment. The, the vast majority of our decisions in business don't have to do with life and death situations. That's the first one I want to mention. Sure. Second one that you want to think about is probabilistic things. Thinking. Probabilistic thinking has to do with how you evaluate reality. We tend to have very much of a black and white approach. You know, same thing is either right or wrong. Something is you know, good or bad. That's not a good approach to thinking about reality. You want to evaluate reality as being probabilistic in nature, as being much more shades of gray. Something may be right. Something may be wrong. What kind of evidence would you need to develop to demonstrate to yourself that something is right or something is wrong? How can you convince yourself? How can you convince others? How can you weigh various pieces of evidence and how important they are to your decisions? That's a complex thing to do. It's not intuitive at all. But that's the shades of gray approach, the probabilistic thinking approach, where you want to put numbers on various pieces of evidence about what reality looks like and about what the best decision would be. 
Another one you want to be thinking about is looking back at your past experience to inform the future. This is a huge one. And especially in engineering and construction, I've seen this go so wrong with my clients so many times. We could talk about some examples. But so many people don't look at the past when they do future projects. They just <laughs> think that they can use their intuition to make the good decisions. Sure. Another one that you want to be thinking about is considering alternative explanations and options. That's a hard thing to do, to consider alternatives, because we are very intuitively oriented toward considering our initial impression the right one. So that is a bad idea, but you want to be able to consider alternative explanations and options in order to consider all sides of an issue and make good decisions. And finally, you want to get an outside perspective. So get an outside perspective, get somebody else to look at the question of the decision, especially someone whose opinion disagrees with you. That is a hard thing to do, but it's very important for us to succeed. A hundred percent agree on that last point as well. And, you know, you and I mentioned before we got on the recording, uh, we were talking about the Sassaw project, which is a very public project. Uh, the outcome of this project has become very public in the engineering and construction world. Uh, this is the Sassaw Lake Charles uh, project that, that went so poorly. And, and I couldn't help but to think about that project as you were describing the probabilistic uh, technique and understanding the probabilities that go into it. My job, my expertise is in cost, uh, cost estimating. So we basically set the budgets for the entire project before the project is approved to move forward. And one of the most common errors that we run into is that people don't really apply probability to these numbers. When we tell them it's going to be a hundred million dollar project plus or minus 10%, they hear $100 million. They don't hear 90 to $110 million and maybe somewhere outside of that range even. And so I, I, going back to the probabilistic thing and thinking about risk and the way that we assign values to risk, uh, yeah, I couldn't help but to consider Sassaw, which started out, I think, being a, a $8.9 billion project, and I think it ended up uh, about 45% over yeah. uh, the target. So very good stuff, man. And that's a great example of something that happens often. There was a study in 2003 of major construction projects, which found that 84% tend to go over mm. budget. 84% of all construction projects tend to go over budget. This is huge. <laughs> yes. It's quite problematic that they go over budget. And I witnessed this quite often. So I work with construction companies as a consultant on how to improve their construction projects. One of the biggest problems I see is a cognitive bias called the planning fallacy. Now, the mm -hmm. planning fallacy has to do with us trusting our plans too much. We feel that when we make a plan, everything will go according to plan. That's a natural intuitive thing. You know, when you have a plan, it's go, things are going to go according to plan. Things will go well. We like ourselves. We trust ourselves. We think we're good right. people. We think our plans are good people. Our teams are good people. And therefore, we make a plan. And, you know, you've probably heard the phrase, failing to plan is planning to fail, right? That's failing right. to plan is planning to fail. It's a famous phrase. It's a common phrase. And it's a very misleading phrase. Because what the phrase causes people to do is think that when they make a plan and when they make a plan that they think is good, then everything will go according to plan. What I strongly encourage my clients to do is to use the phrase, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems That's is an awesome planning statement. to fail. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you want to build into your plans risks, problems, contingencies, things that you don't expect, and the kind of resources that it takes to address them. So there are, as an example, so I talked about the strategy of, con- of considering your past experience. There was a building company that I worked with that would bid on a project. And it found that when it was bidding on a project consistently, it would underbid. So the mm. costs would come in to be too high, <laughs> much higher, quite a bit higher than they expected. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's say they build in a project, you know, they build uh, 16 million, would come in at 20 million. They would build uh, 16, you know, they would bid something like 40 million, would come in at 43 million. And therefore, of course, the project, mar- their profit margins were suffering. So that was a big problem for them. And what we evaluated, what we saw as we went through the process of how they were actually managing their projects, what they were actually doing when we went through the the operational improvement process, what I found was that they were not sitting down and not assessing why they went over costs. So Mm -hmm. that's not something that they were doing. They were not looking at their past experience, what went wrong. That's not something they were doing. So they didn't see what went wrong. They weren't learning from each project. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, you, right. the point of experience is being able to learn from each project. And then they weren't caring, of course, because they didn't have that learning. They weren't carrying that learning into future projects. And that's a very big problem that you're not carrying that learning into future projects because you just keep making the same mistakes, literally, because you keep making the same decisions, you keep making the same mistakes, and that's not great, especially due to the distance between the people who are bidding on a project and the people who are managing the project and you know overseeing the project. Obviously, that's was another di- dynamic that was a problem. So what we ended up doing was making sure that after each project that they had a process where they evaluated what went wrong and what they learned from it. And then before each project, they use their new learning to estimate what Mm -hmm. might go wrong and how they can address it in the future. And in fact, they started baking this into the bid. So they started baking this into the bid before they make the bid. They said, okay, this is what's likely to go wrong based on our experience. So here we will make our bid higher. But what happened was because they built it into the bid, the proposal, then the, they started winning some of the bids that were you know, higher. They weren't the lowest bidder, but nice. they started winning those because they had uh, the buyer had a sense of confidence that this company knew what it's doing. Because <laughs> yeah. they said, you know, we've seen this before. This is what's likely to go wrong. This is why we're this is why we're making this estimate at this level, and why we're confident we'll come in at this estimate. Yeah, and on a related note to that, um, I've seen this a lot where you you would send a, a, a scope of work out for quote from contractors and you end up getting three, maybe four, the first one to go out is going to be the lowest one and then the highest one. And then you're going to choose something in the middle. That's a pretty common tactic on the owner side and the GC side. Mm-hmm. So going back to, to the fact that your guys were winning more work at a higher number, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's uh, it's safe to say that they were doing the right thing at that point. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yes. Yep. Obviously, we're living in some extraordinary times right now. As of the time that we're recording this, um, the pandemic is going on. The coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic is occurring. Uh, About a third of the American workforce is not working right now. There's a global recession happening. 
um, and we can go on, right? But as somebody who's regarded as a disaster avoidance expert, what are the critical things, the changes we're going to have to make to face this uncertain future effectively? First of all, we have to understand what kind of mistakes we're making. <laughs> That's really important. And the biggest mistake Assessment. that we're... Yep, you have to assess what's going on. The biggest mistake, the biggest cognitive bias I've been seeing recently is called the normalcy bias. Now, the normalcy bias is an assumption that the future will be much like today. That was a very safe assumption in the Savannah environment, where we, the future was going to be much like today. It was a bad idea to believe that it wasn't. You know, it's always going to be kind of cyclical, winter, summer, whatever, so these sorts of cycles. So it was very natural and appropriate to think the future is going to be like today. But that's not the right approach and mode of thinking in the modern environment, because we have so many disruptions, ranging from technology disruptions mm -hmm. to, of course, the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis is an example of a major disruption to the current COVID-19 major disruption. But mm -hmm. it's so tempting for people to think that everything will go back to normal, that a lot of people just want to open everything up, go back to normal, go, you know, go on to building stuff, obviously, for the construction industry, engineering, whatever. They want to go back to normal. It's a very intuitive, very natural drive, but it's sure. a very dangerous one. It's a very dangerous one because we're not in a normal situation. Right. We're in an abnormal situation. With the pandemic going on, the reality is that even though states are opening up, the pandemic rates of infections are going up at the same time. So a number of states, a number of regions will have to close down again before Texas. This, yeah. <laughs> Arizona is, uh, you know, and so on, will have to close down again before their medical systems will be overwhelmed. And people aren't thinking about that. They're not looking at that future. They're thinking, well, everything will go fine. It won't. And if you're not preparing right now for the reality of shutdowns and closures in the future, you're wasting your money and making bad decisions about what's going on. So right now, I'm strongly encouraging all of the construction companies with which I work to make sure that their office workers stay home, to create a fully virtual office work environment, not focus on going back to the office as many people want to do. It's natural, intuitive. You know, they want that environment, but they can work just as well in large majority of ways mm -hmm. from home. So you'll, you'll have much less risk. You're putting on much less risk on yourself and on your team if you're doing that. And of course, you know, obviously you can do construction from home, but there's a lot of social distancing safety that you can do, and they are already doing that. But I think the crucial thing that they're not thinking about is that I'm working on with them is having that, that the office workers stay home. Then mm -hmm. how are they going to do sales? They're not going to be able to do sales in person for lots of this time, of course, and especially traveling. So what we're doing is we're teaching them, sales professionals, how to do effective sales uh, virtually. That's not an easy thing to do. You know, it's not intuitive, but the, the sales personnel really are used to slapping you on the back and shaking people's hands. That's what they're good at. But they need to also learn these new skills. How do you sell effectively in online settings? And communication. Communication is not easy in online settings. A lot of the communication has moved to text-based communication only. You know, in the office, you can chat to people, see what's going on.
on, see their faces, hear their tone of voice. You can't mm-hmm. do that, <laughs> of course, in a virtual environment. The, it's much harder. Even if you're doing video conferencing, there's still many gestures, many things that you miss because you only see the other person's face. But most of our collaboration in online settings comes in text form only, whether you're using some collaboration system like Trello, Asana, Microsoft Teams, Slack, and so on. That's where the large majority of collaboration is taking place. And you're missing those emotional subtexts, which are incredibly important. Emotions, how we feel, determine about 80 to 90% of our decisions, our perceptions. You need to understand that. And this effective communication is being really lost. This team collaborations is really suffering since the, these emotional subtexts are lost. You know, when I say something like, I think Bob should take that project, or I say, I think Bob should take that project, those two sentences mean very different things, but written down, they mean the same thing. So that's an example of a you know, tone being lost. This is mm-hmm. something that you really need to address, that people really need to address. I've been seeing failures on this front a lot. So this is another area that you want to be thinking about as you collaborate, as you learn how to collaborate effectively virtually. This is definitely an area where professional development is incredibly important. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that 100%. Um, And technology, obviously, is going to play a key role as we continue to move forward. And society as a whole. I mean, my kids Mm -hmm. are homeschooling. They've been homeschooling since March. That's new for the whole household. But we have the technology to do it now. Whereas we wouldn't have been able to do that, you know, 25 years ago when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is definitely um, a different time. And and luckily, we have the technology to kind of carry us through, but we do have to learn to use it. And that's what my takeaway is from from your comment there. Yes, exactly. We have to learn both our common decision-making disasters and the risks that we don't realize we're facing by not interacting face-to-face and then how to learn these, to address these emotional subtexts, empathy, emotional engagement effectively. Right. I want to jump back, and this will be the last sort of meat and potatoes question I ask, but I want to make sure we capture this because this is an important one to to my community is the optimism bias. Mm. And, And what we see a lot, this is pretty much it all the time. We have owner organizations that tend to be very optimistic about projects. They think they can do it for less money. They think they can do it for faster. uh, And they always think that they should be getting better quality than they end up getting. Mm -hmm. Um, What you mentioned in the book was that control functions, people who serve in control functions, this was my interpretation, uh, tend to have a more realistic viewpoint. And and that since I'm on that side of the fence, mm-hmm. I, I I feel like I have a realistic viewpoint, and and people people call me pessimistic mm-hmm. because I say that a project's gonna cost X million dollars, and they think it's gonna be X hundreds of thousands or or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but could you elaborate on this because I think this is pretty important. Happy to. Well, as someone who is an owner, I mean, I own a company called Disaster Avoidance Experts, right? Six people come sure. to do training, consulting, coaching. I can tell you that I'm an inveterate optimist. So that is <laughs> that is just a, an important aspect of the ownership. The vast majority of owners, founders, leaders, even professional CEOs tend to be optimistic because mm-hmm. optimism is associated with idea generation. People who are pessimistic tend to be less good at generating new ideas. They see the 
flaws, exaggerated flaws of each idea. So they tend to generate less ideas, whereas I'm the kind of person who has 20 ideas before breakfast and thinks they're all brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> not, not the case, as I learned in my bitter experience. Sure. I, mean, I see the world as mostly a friendly place and mostly full of opportunities, and I tend to ignore threats and risks and be biased in that way. So right. have the big blind spots. That's a big problem for me in running my company. Now imagine what would happen if I listened in if I hired and listened only to people who are optimists. And this is a failure mode I tend to see way too often, where the owners, leaders tend to hire, and even when they don't hire simply optimists, they listen to optimists only. You know, it would be six people company, so we'd have, you know, everyone would have 20 ideas before breakfast, and then they'd reinforce each other's ideas, and mm-hmm, we'd be, mm-hmm. you know, say they're all brilliant, and we'd be running in 120 different directions. And of course, you know, when we build in a project, we'd be way underbidding, because we think, oh, yes, we're great, we can do this. <laughs> not good, <laughs> not helpful. What you won't, what I learned uh, when I was studying cognitive biases is that the optimism bias is just as bad as the pessimism bias in its own way. So the pessimism bias, there's nothing wrong with being pessimistic. It's just a description of someone's personality, just as optimistic right. is a description of someone's personality. They're both deviations away from the ideal, yeah. neutral perspective where you perfectly accurately assess the risks one way or the other. But mm-hmm. it's very helpful to have up, to have pessimists uh, for owners who overwhelmingly tend to be optimistic. You want your second person, your second in command to be a pessimist because mm-hmm. what happens is that you know, when I have 20 brilliant ideas, I give them over to the second in command and they say, you know, these are all half-baked potatoes, <laughs> and, you know, but these three are worth finishing baking, you know. Uh, I see it as the three least worst ideas. I mean, I see them as the three best ideas, and that shows you the difference of viewing the world, right? Sure. So this is, and but they are great. Pessimists are great at evaluating the quality of ideas because they do see the flaws of each idea, which I don't, and which the owners, both the CEOs, tend not to see the flaws. And then they can fix the flaws because they see these flaws, they know how to fix them and then implement them effectively. That's a great role for pessimists. So what you want to do with pessimists is very much value them. And it's very hard for owners, CEOs, when they're just going forward with naturally how things are to uplift pessimists because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to me to work with pessimists. I would much prefer to only hire optimists. (laughs) These are the people (laughs) I click with. It's like they're friendly, they're nice, they like my ideas, I like their ideas. It's nice, it's good. That's terrible for good decision making in a business because you you know the money will not flow if we're all nice <laughs> to each other and if we let through a lot of bad ideas and a lot of bad bids. So I make sure to hire people who are not you know people with whom I connect with very well, people who I click with very well, but they're people who I need and who I know I need to assess my ideas. And that's what I have all my clients do: make sure that they have their second in command and a couple of other members of their team who are pessimistically inclined. So the second in command, the operations person, should definitely be pessimistically inclined. You want the CFO to be pessimistically inclined. You want legal to be pessimistically inclined. So those are especially important functions to have people be pessimistic. You won't ever find a salesperson, a sales VP who is pessimistically inclined. Sure, yeah. Look for their HR tends to be also mostly optimistically inclined. But the people 
people you want in the operations, CFO, legal, you want them pessimistically inclined, and you want to uplift them. So this, that's the other thing. When you have discussions, it's very tempting and very intuitive to fall into what's called groupthink. And this is especially dangerous mm-hmm. for optimistically inclined owners who will create a culture naturally when they don't change anything where their opinion their positive opinion dominates the whole group and people who have a more pessimistic opinion are afraid to voice it. Mm -hmm. That is a big problem because what's the point of having them in the room if they're not rewarded for expressing negative opinions? You want to reward them, uplift them, promote them. You want to show them in the language of the organization, which means promotion, uplifting rewards in their annual reviews, all of this sort of stuff, that their perspective is important, valued, and of course, act on the perspective. You want to not trust yourself, not trust your intuition. This is probably the most important thing you want to think about as part of your takeaway from this interview. Don't trust your intuitions. Don't trust your gut reaction. Be humble. Develop that humility about yourself, about your ability to make the best decisions, because without that, you will simply lose a lot of money and you will make the wrong decisions for your company going forward. Excellent. Well, this has been very good information and I appreciate you coming on. Tell, tell the audience again the name of your book. Never go with your gut. How pioneering leaders make the best decisions to avoid business disasters. And you can find this in bookstores everywhere if they're open around you. And of course, if you don't want to put yourself under that risk, just order it online. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all sorts of book online bookstores is published by a great traditional publisher called Career Press. So there's a digital version if you want that, an ebook. There's a physical version if you want that. And there's an audiobook on Audible. So for I just got the audiobook actually there you go. Uh, last week. So kind of help me help me get through it because I just don't have time to sit and read a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Audible is a lifesaver. Uh, great. Thank you so much. Um, how can people get a hold of you, Dr. Gleb? They can go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com for my blogs, videos, podcasts, decision aids, guides, manuals, online classes, coaching, consulting, of course, virtual, a lot of this presentations, doing a lot of sure. webinars nowadays. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, once the pandemic is over, more in-person stuff. You want to especially go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. There's a free eight video-based module course on making the wisest decisions. So it's a free course, eight video-based modules on making the wisest decisions. And part of that course is an assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace. Free assessment, dangerous judgment errors in the workplace, 30 most dangerous judgment errors. It helps you see which of them are most present for you and which of them you should address first. So check that out, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Nice. And we will definitely have all that linked in the show notes. So if anybody's listening to this and and you didn't catch all that, be sure and go to the show notes and you can click on it. It'll take you right to the resources that Dr. Gleb is describing. Thank you so much for being on Dr. Gleb. It's been really great and uh, stay safe in in the storms over there. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. This hurricane Cristobal is uh, something. Yeah. Awesome. Well, All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Rob.